Hello and welcome to this episode of PhD Addicted to Research. Today we're taking an in-depth look at cannabis use disorder and treatment options and are delighted to be joined by our guest Rachel Lees, a current PhD student at the University of Bath whose research focuses on this topic. So my name is Chloe and I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Bath looking at the relationship between cannabis use, tobacco use and mental health. Also joining me on today's episode is our podcast team member, Marva, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, thanks, Chloe. Uh, my name is Marva and I'm a PhD student at the University of Exeter. And my research focuses on psychological mechanisms of alcohol use disorders and looking at how they can be targeted with treatments. Thanks, Marva. So, Rachel, I know you very well, but that's no use to anyone else listening. So <laughs> if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Hi, Chloe. Yeah, um, <laughs> thank you very much, firstly, for inviting me to be on the podcast today. Um, I'm Rachel. I'm an MRC-funded PhD student um, at the University of Bath. My research is looking at a diagnosis called cannabis use disorder, and my research studies are broadly looking at how to best support people with cannabis use disorder, um, including looking at which treatments might work, and also identifying who might be most vulnerable to developing cannabis use disorder. So what is cannabis use disorder, just so everyone's on the same page? Yeah, of course. Um, so that's a diagnosis uh, that somebody might be given if their cannabis use is causing a significant impairment to their life, um, stopping their functioning or potentially causing them distress. Uh, so some key symptoms might be, for example, someone not meeting their responsibilities um, at work or at school, or some people have trouble with stopping their cannabis use uh, and associated symptoms like withdrawal um, and craving. And how common is cannabis use disorder? It, initially, a while back, it was thought to not be too common, uh, but I think we're getting a better idea of the amount of people that do go on to develop cannabis use disorder. It's thought potentially up to kind of 30% of regular users and potentially approximately 22 million people worldwide. Um, so it's quite a big group. Mm. And that actually kind of relates to something I wanted to ask is that if it is something that we're still building our understanding about, are there any kind of myths or common misconceptions that people have about CUD? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of common myths and misconceptions generally about cannabis use and the associated effects and, and harms. So probably the biggest one with, with CUD is just the fact that it exists in the first place. Um, you get a yeah. lot of uh, ideas just that cannabis isn't associated with harms or that it's not addictive specifically. But if you contrast that with the kind of 22 million figure that I just told you about, clearly there are some misconceptions that still need to be kind of rectified in, in the kind of general public's mind. Definitely. I was really surprised to hear that number, actually. That's really high. And I guess it's kind of a good contrast with the fact that a lot of people report using cannabis to deal with some of their um, symptoms of mental health, like depression and anxiety, but also the cannabis use itself can exacerbate these um, conditions, can't it? Yeah, and it's quite hard to know the chicken and the egg in that kind of situation. Mm. But one thing we you do see with cannabis use disorder, it, it does often come alongside problems with anxiety and depression or potentially other substance use problems. Um, it's not usually something that seems to happen in isolation. Mm. 
And, you know, that could feed into the misconception about cannabis being the problem. Um, People might seek out treatment in that instance for their anxiety or for their depression and not kind of mention the cannabis use to their treatment provider. So it can go a little bit under the radar. Mm, Definitely. And I guess when we're talking about, um, so the number of people who use cannabis and the ones that go on to develop cannabis use disorder, I think you mentioned about 30% do which is a large number but what are the characteristics of people who do go on to develop a disorder rather than recreational use of cannabis without any problems yeah i think there are there are lots of things that have been put forward um, kind of suggested in the literature that might make someone more likely to um, transition to having um, cannabis use disorder from use one of the main ones that i'm quite interested in is um, a potential age vulnerability so there's this idea that using cannabis in your teenage years and your adolescence leads you to be more likely to develop problems based on your use. Mm. Uh, the evidence isn't really, really strong at this point for that, um, but that's it does seem to be the case. In terms of potency of cannabis use, that also has been associated with uh, development of CUD and with increased people seeking out treatment for CUD. Mm. And then there's some other factors So frequency and quantity do definitely seem to feed into likelihood of of developing cannabis use disorder. I guess that's reasonably intuitive. So the more you use uh, in terms of frequency, so potentially every day, um, and in terms of quantity, actual amount of cannabis used, uh, those both kind of obviously relate to the likelihood of developing CUD. Rachel, I've come across some stuff in in my area, the cannabis-tobacco overlap, that tobacco can also influence potentially um, subsequent risk of developing CUD. Is that that right? Mm. Does the research back that up? Yeah, that definitely um, seems to be the case. And tobacco and cannabis sort of co-use seems to impact on the ability to maybe treat cannabis problems as well. It's not something we did cover in the review, but I did come across a few studies and that a few people are trying to target um, people who have both kind of nicotine dependence and cannabis use disorder. And it seems like a bit of a tricky one. So yes, um, co-use with tobacco is also very common, um, in, especially in people in the UK who use cannabis. And it does seem to impact um, the likelihood of, of going on to have CUD. Okay. Mm. And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but just before we move on, I wondered with tobacco and also with age, why might it be that people who start like in terms of maybe like biological mechanisms is there anything known about why earlier use is associated with uh, more risk of dependence and similarly with tobacco why is the concurrent use associated with developing um, CUD? I think for the age it comes down to this idea of the the brain typically going through um, quite an intense period of development over the teenage years Um, I think at the moment that's just it's just a good theory it kind of yeah. makes sense in your adolescence you're more uh, sensitive to the impact of your environment because your brain's still developing um, and you know some of your areas of your brain that are involved in impulse control and things like that are still developing um, but like I said it's not grounded in lots and lots of research of direct comparisons of adults and teenagers For tobacco, I'm not quite sure of any biological reason why. I mean, psychologically, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I guess if you, um, yeah, if you just add two kind of addictive substances together, they're likely to potentially exacerbate each other. 
um, and potentially, you know, withdrawal symptoms from from one making withdrawal symptoms from another more severe, mm. um, which obviously withdrawal is a big barrier to being able to, you know, reduce your dependence on a substance. Yeah. So what percentage of people who develop CUD actually seek or receive treatment? This is a really um, important part of looking at the overall picture of of CUD and it's something that I've been I'm hoping to address in my PhD somewhat. The proportion of people with CUD who receive treatment at least is really low in comparison to the amount of people that we think have CUD. Mm. So some estimates are even up to kind of 85% of people with CUD not seeking out um, or not receiving professional treatment. Mm. So there seems to be a lot of barriers obviously some of this is going to feed into what what I said earlier on about those common misconceptions of mm. CUD um, and then there's also other kind of drug general barriers like stigma that that stop people from from seeking out treatment mm. yeah that's really interesting so if someone was to seek treatment what options are available to them is there can you tell us a little bit about the evidence base for psychological treatments for example Yeah, so this is what we've recently summarised in our review. Uh, We looked at clinical trials that have been conducted um, with the hope of reducing cannabis use disorder. Um, So thinking about psychological treatment options for CUD, there's been a few um, investigated. Generally, we see that they they are broadly effective, never really for the whole of the samples. You often don't get um, kind of 100% rates of abstinence or anything like that, of course. But treatments, especially with a combination of approaches, so ones that kind of at the start of treatment might tap into increasing someone's motivation to quit um, and then going on to sort of treatments based on cognitive behavioural therapy techniques. They seem to work to reduce cannabis use. There's another type of psychological therapy that's um, somewhat controversial called contingency management, which involves yeah, reimbursing someone for um, kind of having a either a negative screen for cannabis or I guess sort of just a self-report of not using cannabis anymore. The evidence suggests combining contingency management, especially with those other types of therapies that I was just saying, seems to produce the best results um, into the medium term for reducing cannabis use. And um, what about pharmacological treatments? Is there any available or offered? No, Um, but lots have been investigated. So the psychological therapies I just mentioned, they are what someone would likely receive if they did seek out treatment um, in kind of the UK or Europe, Um, whereas no drug medication has been licensed for use in CUD. Lots have been investigated because obviously it would be great if you could get a medication that works because psychological therapy is quite intensive, quite time consuming. It's not necessarily appropriate for everybody. So some of the kind of emerging potential pharmacological treatments include THC, which is the psychoactive component of cannabis. Um, And I think if you think about that in a similar kind of way to someone who's a smoker or someone who is addicted to cigarettes um, being given uh, nicotine, it kind of works in the same sort of substitution way. And it's thought that giving THC seems to help with withdrawal symptoms and with craving, Mm -hmm. but we're kind of less clear on whether that does actually help to reduce cannabis use. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, actually. 
I was going to say, I suppose there's also the combustible aspect of it. So when you've switched mm. someone to a nicotine patch, they're no longer getting the physical arms from smoking. So maybe that also applies to the cannabis where most often smoked, right? Exactly. And then so another kind of emerging treatment for um, CUD is cannabidiol. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not thought to be responsible for the kind of addictive nature of cannabis use. So unlike THC, which might mean that it is more acceptable as a treatment option. There's been only one clinical trial that I'm aware of, of cannabidiol for CUD, and the initial results are definitely encouraging. Um, so it was associated with a reduction in cannabis use. Um, but this is obviously, of course, just one RCT at this point. So we'll, we would need to kind of have more evidence to suggest um, that cannabidiol does work. Uh, but that's an interesting future avenue. It's also obviously not associated with the high mm. from cannabis as well. So um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with these kind of endocannabinoid yeah. system targeting treatments. Yeah, that's interesting. I was interested in CBD because so it's not as a replacement therapy because it doesn't produce the same effects as THC would. So I guess what is the mechanism? Is it more targeting the same uh, receptor systems? Like I was just curious about it. Is it does it have a psychological effect? Because you said it doesn't produce a high. So what is the psychological or biological mechanism there? If you know anything about it? Yeah, that's like my million dollar question, basically. <laughs> that's um, a difficult one. It is difficult, yeah. Especially in recent years, CBD has kind of been um, pinned as this kind of cure-all. Yeah. Um, so there is a thought that it might help to reduce anxiety. It's also been looked at as an antipsychotic. Okay, um, I didn't know that. Um, with what seems like quite successful results. One thing that I'm going to be looking at is potential pro-cognitive effects of cannabidiol. So, um, you know, potentially if it helps, a lot of people with CUD can also, at least in the short term, have some problems with their memory, their cognition, things like that. So it could be um, by improving their cognition, you might help them to um, tackle their uh, addiction. But uh, basically, I don't think that's known yet. Um, but that will be yeah. really interesting if we're if we're able to pin that down. Yeah, no, I thought that was quite interesting. And just quickly, do you know in the trial how was the CBD delivered? So this was oral doses of CBD. One thing that's really important to note with um, CBD is so in that trial they were given four hundred milligrams or eight hundred milligrams daily. Um, Mm -hmm. And this absolutely doesn't translate with the amount of cannabidiol that's in your high street um, CBD products. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's just really important to note, unless you spent hundreds, maybe thousands of pounds. um, Mm. These kind of clinical trial doses are much, much higher than the than the cannabidiol that you would find um, in a high street pharmacy. Yeah, no, that is really interesting because I think there's a lot of hype around CBD and some other drugs and Mm. there's probably some science to it. But also uh, if people are buying it at much lower doses that are unlikely to have any psychoactive effects, it's mostly placebo effect. Yeah, Yeah. it's sort of if you got um, a standard uh, thing of tablets of CBD from the high street, it would maybe be 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams. It's actually unregulated, so it might not even mm. have that in. Um, yeah. Yeah, in comparison to, yeah, 800 milligrams daily for four weeks. Um, you can yeah. imagine that might 
um, be unsustainable to, to do yourself on, on the high street products. Yeah, definitely. So we're, we're telling everyone not to do that, definitely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Rachel, you mentioned a couple of times when you were discussing the treatments, like what works. Um, what kind of outcomes are we looking for in the literature? What's the ideal outcome of a, of a CUD treatment? Well, they really vary. So from clinical trial to clinical trial, um, the researchers tend to have different um, understandings or ideas of what would class as a positive treatment response. Generally, it does seem as though most people kind of root for sustained complete abstinence from cannabis use, which to be honest isn't achieved in the majority of trials. And I think in real life perhaps isn't necessary as the goal to, to aim for. So of course if that mm. works for an individual, if that's what they want to achieve, then um, absolutely we should have treatments that help them to, to get to that point. Um, but one thing we've spoke about in the review is really that um, kind of sustained just improvements and reductions in use can be helpful, especially if someone doesn't meet those symptoms anymore for having a cannabis use disorder. I think for me that would definitely represent a positive treatment response, but that isn't necessarily reflective of um, the views of the whole field um, in, in treating CUD. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting and it sounds like yeah, you need to take a person-centred approach in terms of the treatment outcomes. Yeah, agreed. Um, I think in the future we might see some clinical trials potentially um, incorporating medications with um, with talking therapies as well. And it'd be interesting to see um, what kind of ends up being achieved through those. Um, and another thing that I think really needs to be seen in the literature is some following up those participants for a longer period of time and seeing how their cannabis Definitely. use changes when they're not receiving the treatment anymore um you know are any treatments even just less associated with relapse into the future for example i think that would be a really good positive outcome of, of treatments so we need to start following the participants in these trials for, for a longer period of time yeah yeah definitely from the literature that is out there rachel is there anything that seems to influence how effective the treatment is yeah and this is one thing we focused on in the review as well what we wanted to look at i told you earlier on that cud is pretty common um to also have something like anxiety or depression or also another substance use disorder and one thing that you see in these clinical trials is that people who have those um comorbidities are tend to be excluded so you then don't get a good picture of how well these treatments work for you know really the average people that would need them so there is some there are some trials that did look you know deliberately at whether treatments worked in cud and anxiety for example um, and with anxiety and depression it, it roughly seems as though you can target someone who has both of those um, problems at the same time and that's really encouraging but if someone has CUD comorbid with psychosis, for example, then you see that a few of those treatment options, you know, the sort of psychological ones that I mentioned before, um, unfortunately don't seem to be as effective in that population. So that, you know, that suggests we really, really need to be developing specific treatments for that population um, because cannabis use in, in people with psychosis is, is really high. And it does tend to affect their um, outcomes for the psychosis as well. 
that's really interesting. I guess it's that um, difficulty between trying to show whether your treatment works in ideal circumstances and making sure the population you recruit into your trial is representative mm. of the population who would be receiving that treatment in real life. Exactly. It's a, it's a really tricky thing, especially when you're developing a new treatment. Um, you don't want to be giving that to people who could potentially benefit better from another um, more established treatment as well. Um, mm. So I think it's just it's a new direction that the field can now go in. You know, we've got quite a lot of evidence um, in populations with, with just CUD. And I think there needs to be a, a concerted effort to then replicate those findings in population groups that you are going to find are presenting for treatment in real life. Definitely. Um, and speaking about the generalizability of the trials, um, I was really intrigued to read in your paper that most trials were conducted on men. Uh, and I just thought for a second, is it that men are more likely to have cannabis use disorder? But that didn't seem to be the case. Um, and it, this might sound quite um, like a small thing, but actually we do need data based on both women and men, don't we? Because, um, you know, these disorders can affect different genders differently. So, um, yeah, I just thought, what do you think about that? Why? Um, and maybe is there particularly different? Um, do women have different needs in terms of cannabis use disorder? Yeah, so, I mean, CUD is more common in, in men than women um, because, I mean, cannabis use is more common in men than women. So I don't think that it accounts entirely for the reason why clinical trials are mostly conducted in men. Um, and I think one of the one of the big problems more so is that there are so few women in these trials that you then can't try and look at whether there was any kind of sex or, or gender specific effects. So it's not just about them being represented kind of um, in the trials, it's also about um, then we just have this big data gap where we can't see, yeah. um, oh, maybe, you know, maybe one element of a therapy works better for women or works better for men. Um, so that's that's the problem. and. Yeah, that there is some evidence to suggest that women, you know, they do use cannabis differently to men. They are potentially more likely to um, develop CUD quicker than than men would. Um, mm. And also just in terms of social factors, um, these these therapies need to work for everybody. Um, and so I would at least suggest that in future trials, they need to be able to explicitly explore the role of sex so they need to have enough women in that clinical trial to at mm. least be able to meaningfully explore whether there were any differences in in the male and female response to the treatment definitely because it sounds like the disorder trajectories trajectories um can be quite different according to gender as yeah well. yeah we do tend to see that women um would go on to develop cud over a shorter period of time than men um, and I suspect there's probably lots of other interesting differences between how men and women use cannabis um, and their rates of cannabis use disorder. But I think, yeah, generally, even though lots more men do have CUD than, than women, um, we, of course, need to be able to have treatments that work for, for everybody, preferably. Um, and so I'm yeah. hoping to see that change in the literature um, moving forward. You mentioned quite key limitations from the RCTs already done um are there any other barriers or limitations that you've come across either in the literature or in your own research so far 
that you thought were important? Generally, yeah, lots and lots of suggestions for ways of making clinical trials um, more generalizable. Um, I think what we could also do with is studying um, the treatments that people actually receive when they go to a drug treatment service. I think it's like unlikely, sorry, that they follow on exactly from a clinical trial kind of methodology. Um, and so I think it's really important actually to get a, a better understanding of what works in the real world and kind of as part of that working through that figuring out ways to improve the access um, and the acceptability of treatments to hopefully then help mm. to increase the number of people that do engage with treatment for CUD. Definitely it's not just about having an effective treatment if people don't want mm. to take it up yeah. isn't it yeah it has to be something that people find acceptable and will take on. I think honestly as well just increasing the awareness that CUD is something that you can receive a treatment for that someone will you know try and help you through I think that's a major barrier Mm. Um, so there's yeah I think that's kind of the recommendations for the future I think trying to work towards um, moving maybe away from the clinical trial format somewhat and figuring out what works in the actual treatment settings and how to get you know encourage more people to be engaging in treatment definitely and i guess it's sort of like you said in the beginning people perceive cannabis as a less harmful drug therefore not many people are available that are knowledgeable that you can have cannabis use disorder as well there's if you kind of think about a drug treatment setting um, a cannabis user does differ somewhat to users of other drugs in terms of you know the type of treatments that they need um, mm. and we could possibly need to figure out ways of just encouraging cannabis users that those treatment centers actually are available for them they aren't just Mm -hmm. for people using um, different types of drugs that are maybe more associated with treatment Um, so lots and lots to be done I think (laughs) lots of barriers to overcome are you following up on any of those things in terms of the next couple of years for your PhD yeah hopefully yes um So, I mean, I guess alongside my PhD, one thing I'm trying to do quite regularly is go into schools and speak with parents of of teenagers about um, all of these issues that we've just spoken about, basically, to to try and do my small bit to to get the word out there a bit more. And in terms of my actual PhD studies, we have tried to look a little bit about um, how people seek out treatment to to help with that end of the kind of journey to Mm. get someone through to treatment. Um, We haven't been particularly successful. Mm. So we we did try and look at um, some GP data in a group of people that we knew were using cannabis and had problems with their cannabis use. Um, And from looking at the GP data, we seem to potentially get um, the idea that people don't go to their GP um, with their cannabis problems. So... Um, that's interesting and it would be great to see if we can try and replicate that to see if that is something you know nationwide that isn't happening um, in which case we might know where to um, where not to or where to focus efforts to um, get healthcare workers to ask questions to people about their cannabis use definitely I wonder when you said they don't go to their GP I wonder if it's also about the fact that you said cannabis use disorder doesn't 
often present on its own so are they seeking help for the associated problems from different services maybe like mental health services like you said and it might be that you think about um, increasing awareness of those issues in those settings as well exactly yeah I think in general that's a good idea um, for especially sort of younger people who are maybe in that vulnerable um, age to developing cannabis problems I think it makes sense that if someone, you know, presents to a treatment service with depression or anxiety to ask a few questions about cannabis use. I think people feel uncomfortable talking about cannabis use unless they have specific training on on how to do it. And, you know, there's quite a lot of confusion about what actually counts as problematic use. So for some people, if someone's using any cannabis, then that is problematic. for, for us under the guise of cannabis use disorder it's a bit more sophisticated than that you know there are specific mm-hmm. symptoms to look out for um but yeah i think we definitely need to be asking more questions about cannabis use to people presenting for all kinds of services um for their mental health rachel based on your experiences so far of doing your phd do you have any tips or words of advice for current or future phd students hmm yeah, I feel like I'm always full of advice for <laughs> potentially until put on the spot. Um, the thing that I've definitely found um, has been a journey to come to terms with is the fact that your PhD develops over time and you often start with such a clear-cut proposal um, of exactly what you're going to do and, and how you do it and it won't go like that. It won't yeah. go ahead like that. It's good to have a framework, but that won't happen. So you need to just try and develop a resilience or um, something similar to be able to just (laughs) get through the times when um, you think, oh yeah, I was looking in for some GP data about cannabis use and there isn't any. So now I need to go down a completely different um, path. So that's definitely, I guess that's a general PhD tip. Yeah. Um, For kind of future people who haven't maybe started a PhD yet, I would say for me, pretty much singly, the most important part of my PhD is the people around me that help me through it. So my my PhD supervisor and um, the other lovely students, including Chloe, (laughs) that are in my research group. Um, So definitely try and meet the team before you start anywhere. That would be my biggest suggestion. Mm, That's a really, those are both really good tips. And I think what you described there in terms of changing your plans that's very realistic of how research goes after your PhD as well isn't it so it is a really good skill that we have to learn throughout our PhDs yeah you can be the best PhD student ever but you're not going to be able to anticipate um the problems that you will face (laughs) yeah yeah definitely I don't know anyone who whose PhD just went kind of exactly as planned and usually you come out um the better for it because you've had to develop some kind of future planning plan b exactly rachel is like my little book of calm (laughs) yeah she's a little uh, pot of advice feel very lucky to have her Um, yeah it's so nice to have another student in your lab yeah yeah um so i think that's everything we had planned to cover today thank you rachel so much for coming and giving a whistle stop tour of cannabis use disorder and treatment options um for anyone interested we'll be posting the link to rachel's narrative review of cannabis use disorder and treatment um just below the episode uh thank you everyone for tuning in and do be sure to check out the other episodes we've posted